God checks into the Mayo Clinic for a routine physical. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. The Lord Almighty arrived early this morning at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota for his semi-millennial checkup. Walking without assistance and accompanied by his only beloved son, Jesus, God looked considerably younger than his 14.5 billion years. Clinic spokesman, Charles Grantley. For an all-powerful being of his age, he's in great shape, but it's important to keep an eye out on his uh, colon, his heart. His, you know, we want to keep on top of things. In 2003, doctors treated the Lord for several planet-sized kidney stones and removed a growth from his face that was later diagnosed as Australia. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News. Joe's Media Corner. This week we're going to take a little turn around the corner to the humor side of newspapering and media, talking to one of the original editors of The Onion, Scott Dickers. He has a new book out about the background on The Onion, how it came about, and how he learned marketing from that humor newspaper that started at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. We heard a clip from The Onion Radio News, which was one of their great products for years. The parody, the satire, the crazy approach to humor and news that The Onion has brought very often. So we're going to get to that interview in a moment. But when I remind you, my new book is out, Killing Journalism, How Greed, Laziness, and Donald Trump Are Destroying News and How We Can Save It. That's out of Willow Street Press and on Amazon.com this week, ready for your viewing and reading pleasure. So check it out at Amazon.com. And let's take a moment to thank our sponsors, Jiminy's. Jiminy's makes a delicious dog treat that uses cricket protein. Yes, I said cricket protein. It's better than beef or chicken because it's sustainable. And Jiminy's uses less water and land than beef or chicken. Check them out at Jiminy's.com. That's J-I-M-I-N-Y-S.com. And now let's get to our interview with Scott Dickers. Scott, how are you doing? Good. How are you, Joe? Good. And, of course, uh, we are one of the founders of The Onion. I mean, that kind of says it all. We want to talk to you about what that means and what your story is. And, of course, you're author of the new book, Outrageous Marketing, which uh, is on Amazon.com and uh, at other outlets. Uh, it's actually exclusive on Amazon. It's kind of a, you know, Amazon is obviously a very successful company, and one of the ways they do that is uh, by treating authors really well. And I've published traditionally, and I've published on, you know, all the outline, all the online outlets. But Amazon really incentivizes authors to be exclusive with Amazon. I've done it with one other book, and it's a really good experience. So doing it again. Yes, and you've written several books. What was the other book that was Amazon only? <clears throat> the other book that is. Still, Amazon only is called How to Write Funny, and it's another nonfiction book where I just kind of do a brain dump on how you write successful comedy. Let's give people the background. Um, if, of course, I was yeah. reading through the book. It's 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 not only well written as a really easy to follow story of your your background and how the Onion came about and the ups and downs of its creations and and really groundbreaking stuff. But um, you, now you grew up in Minneapolis. You attended the University of Wisconsin, or you. Give us the uh, mm. the quick background. Yeah, barely. There. Barely. <laughs> I, I think I remember that. <laughs> yeah, I kind of bounced around uh, after flunking out of high school, worked at McDonald's and other stuff, but I really just wanted to do comedy for a living. It was all I knew how to do, really. So I bounced around. I, I, made, I made cartoons. I made movies. And I eventually sold some cartoons and came to Madison, Wisconsin, and sold a comic strip to the student newspaper there, the Daily Cardinal, that really caught on and got to be really popular. And I was able to uh, leverage that to actually make a living off of it. I sold T-shirts and syndicated it to other newspapers 
newspapers, and I still had like a day job. I worked at a radio station, but that was how I got involved with The Onion, because when you're kind of a little comedy celebrity in Madison with a popular comic strip, you meet all the people in that sphere, and the, these two guys who were starting up The Onion came to me and wanted me involved, and I thought it was an awesome idea, so I jumped right in and then pretty quickly you know, was hanging out at their flat helping, and then a, a few months into that, they offered to sell it to me and to other people, so... I became owner-editor after like the first year and was, you know, part of, I hired the first writers and kind of started to put the team together. And we, over the years, figured out like what the Onion voice and tone was through a lot of experimentation, like just many years of trial and error of just trying to be funny in newsprint. And the uh, comic strip you did was called Jim's Journal? Correct. That's in the book. And, and it's still around. Like, I don't draw it anymore, but Universal Press Syndicate handles it and they have it up on Go Comics. So people can still see it. And it's funny because I tell the story in the book of how, like, my comic is, you know, pretty obscure. and Not a lot of people know about it or remember it unless they happen to live in one of those towns where it ran in the late 80s, early 90s or whatever. But there was a college student in one of the newspapers where it ran who was inspired by it. Because Jim's Journal is a comic that is basically a stick figure that tells you what he did that day. So every strip is like his journal. And... It was very unique. There wasn't really a comic strip like that. But this student at it was the University of Maryland, he had a comic strip in the newspaper there as a student. And he was inspired to create his own six figure comic about a character who tells you what he did that day. And it was called Diary of a Wimpy Kid. And we know where that went on to. <laughs> we know where that went. So that's like the, the one connection to my comic that people might be aware of. Excellent. And the Jim's Journal approach, isn't it? wasn't that even sort of a parody of cartoons? You basically have the stick figure that doesn't yeah. live off of its great, maybe creative artistic image, but more on the humor and the, the scope of what he's doing and saying and writing. It was a very, very self-aware kind of anti-comic strip that, you know, because I've been drawing comic strips for years and trying to get them published, and I really didn't like a lot of the comic strips that were out there. In the book, you sort of point to Garfield as yeah, pokey really and unfunny. Yeah, I hated, just hated Garfield. But it's similar to The Onion, like the, the way... I approached The Onion was I really didn't like a lot of other college humor publications or humor publications in general. I thought they were making a lot of mistakes and I wanted to correct those mistakes and do it right. And same with my comic strips. So I wanted to hit all of the uh, medium expectations that people had for a comic strip. It has to be easy to read. It has to be well-written. You have to fall in love with the characters. So those are like the baseline genre expectations. But I wanted to do it in a way that was really different. So the art was terrible, and there were no punchlines in the last panel. And people would get really confused. But it was nonetheless satisfying these expectations to the point where it got really popular, and I was able to sell book, you know, book collections of the strip. And one of them, the first one, made the New York Times bestseller list, even though it was self-published. And I literally hand-delivered it to bookstores. So I was in the practice of kind of mocking the format that I was using and definitely used that a lot when it came to The Onion, mocking the newspapers and the media in general. And then when it was created at the University of uh, Wisconsin, who were the other creators involved? Tim Keck and Chris Johnson. Were right, few, and you talk about... Like business guys who started it, and they were super smart, really funny guys. They were like two of the coolest guys I had ever met in my life up to that point, so they're the kind of guys you just want to be involved with in any kind of comedy enterprise or any business enterprise, and they've gone on to be hugely successful. Tim Keck 
went off to Seattle and founded The Stranger in Seattle. And sure, Portland's which is a great alternative uh, paper and website. Chris went to Albuquerque and started the weekly alibi there. And it was originally going to be called The Rag? The Onion was originally, that was the working title when we started The Rag. And we just decided it's just a little crude, you know, it just uh, didn't seem to work. And then this name The Onion came about because him and Chris, Chris especially, I remember going over to his place one time for breakfast. He was eating raw onion cut up on a piece of untoasted white bread. Yeah, I read that and in the book, and I'm thinking, who eats onion sandwiches? That a little right, strange. apparently uh, Tim's uncle saw that and just like whimsically said, why don't you call this thing the onion? And it kind of stuck. And it also seems to be a little bit of an anti-name, too. You know, a lot of newspapers get a little full of themselves. The Times, the uh, the Journal, the Reg, you know, all the great normal names. Or they get into the Republican or the American right. Journal. Or sort of, we're the great voice of the people. And even some TV shows, you know, the opening of the CBS Evening News or ABC World News sure. Tonight and graphics and music, the grand wizard here, you know. And the onion is kind of seems like you're not even the apple or the orange or the <laughs> the uh, fruit salad or it's just the onion, which is sort of what does this have? And then you go into the book about well, you're peeling away layers of fat. You know, was that? Yeah, uh, it makes sense as a name, but you're right. It's just it doesn't have any air of pretension to it. And then, but later in later years, when we really found our footing and really knew how to produce good comedy every week. We would get letters from people saying, did you name it The Onion because you knew people would be laughing so hard they would cry? And I would think, oh my God, can you imagine if we had that much chutzpah to think that? No, we did not. And then, so now the first issue was uh, 1988, a little over 30 years ago. What was the first issue and what was in it? How did you distribute it? How did you print it? So it was printed at a local printing press and it cost, you know, almost $1,000 to print around 10 or 15,000 copies of the first issue. And they were distributed free on the street. I think Tim and Chris themselves like went out with a hand truck and delivered these bundles of newspaper. And the front page story was kind of a old grocery store tabloid, like Weekly World News parody about like a Loch Ness monster in one of the lakes in Madison. And it looks pretty, you know, humble and a lot of my cartoons are in it. The thing, the great thing about The Onion is like you put out a new issue every week. So you do your best. And if it's not great, you know, you're going to come right back and you always have a chance to do better. And we had this attitude of just like always trying to make the next issue better. And it was newsprint and how many pages? It was newsprint. We were always on newsprint. And the first issue, so there were two different kinds of newsprint. There was like the expensive kind, which was a little thicker, not as gray looking, not as flimsy. And I think for the first issue, we went with that fancier newsprint. It's a little more expensive. And it it was either eight or 12 pages. I don't remember. But those were our, you know, you had the big tabloid sheet and you'd fold it four ways. And many, in about, you said about 10,000, 12,000 copies? I think it was 10 or 15. It was somewhere in there. But distributed only in Madison? Distributed on the street in Madison, Wisconsin. That's it. No website, obviously. That didn't exist. Sure. And did it have any advertising? There was advertising in it, but we didn't advertise the onion. Like there was no way to promote it or market it. We just put it out there. Because the product itself was the marketing. And uh, was it distributed on campus as well, I assume? Or no? Exclusively on campus, yeah. yeah, like down, you know, Madison, it's like down State Street and ah. dorms and stuff like that, yeah. And what was the initial reaction? You know, you don't have email, you don't have any, like, metrics. Right. So you kind of, like, keep your ears open and you see, you know, what are people saying on the street, what are your friends saying, and whatever. And I think at first people were a little intrigued, and they're like, oh, something new. And it took a few months, and in that time we did a few issues that were a little more salacious, a little more shocking or juvenile attention-getting type headlines, usually involving, like, the chancellor posing naked or, 
you know, some other goofy thing. And then you'd start to hear people talking about it. They'd chuckle about it or whatever. And so you're just kind of trying to get a rise out of people. And then you might see articles cut out and pasted onto um, dorm room doors or professors' office doors. Then you get a, a sense that, oh, that one really worked. I, I've seen that one clipped out a lot. It's hard to imagine like the days before even like email stuff went viral. Like you literally are just looking at the physical world and trying to get a sense of what's working. Right. I teach some journalism class, and I'm sure you've talked to many college students over the years. I have, yeah. And it's, it's sometimes interesting to to remind them there was no email, there was no internet, uh, cell phones were barely in existence. Um, Nobody had a cell phone. Yeah, no yeah. one really, it wasn't what it is today. To get this kind of new operation off the ground and get it going, you really had to be creative. But you was, it was also, what was sort of the philosophy? It seemed to me very smart humor that made fun of itself, but also made fun of everything and, and always had a, a tinge of truth to it. There was never any sense that, that we were taking anything seriously. Like the right. whole idea was, and it kind of stems from this, I guess, Letterman-esque. Yes, and you mentioned that in the book, you very, very Letterman, big Letterman fans. And, and then sort of similar to the Harvard Lampoon, although I think I think the Onion even is even more creative than the Harvard Lampoon. Lampoon is really creative, but it has a really sort of august template, yeah. and it looks a, lo a little pretentious the way stories are laid out, and that like almost like faux Latin or whatever. But I guess Mad Magazine is a little closer. Yeah, I know you, you rave but... about Mad Magazine being one of your, one of your influences, <laughs> yeah. which is great. Yeah, it's like everything within the pages of the Onion was except for the advertising, was fake and was not taken seriously. And so we would just have fun in that space, and we would make fun of readers and call them idiots and, you know, make, make up stories that were totally impractical and unhelpful, like just information that no student would ever need or want to know, and we would present it with great detail. And then, you know, printing swear words and nudity was also pretty unusual at yes. the time. You didn't really see that. So, yeah, I mean, that was kind of, that was kind of the vibe. And we were just trying to be funny. We we're just trying to make ourselves laugh, trying to have fun with this soapbox that we had. Like I said, it took years to really zero in on the kind of strict AP style news parody. We were doing it early, but we were doing it in a lot of different ways. We'd parody, like like I said, grocery store tabloid type news. We'd parody small town newspapers. Uh, it, was all, it was kind of a mix. And in that too were a lot of cartoons and a lot of contests and other like college-y type of fe features, like win a date with, you know, some horribly unappealing figure, you know, just like all sorts of experimental things that we were trying to do to find our voice. And it was great that we had that freedom. There was there was no marching order. There was no business influence. My business partner and I had a deal where I couldn't tell him how to spend the money and he couldn't tell me what to write. And so I had complete freedom to say anything I wanted in The Onion for years. And it really helped The Onion find its voice. Because like I said, we were always just trying to make the next issue funnier than the last issue. And it still comes out weekly in print? No, the print no? edition stopped ah. tragically in 2013. And uh, so now it's all online. It's all online. The print just wasn't viable anymore. It's really sad. But it lasted a good uh, several decades. Good 25 years, yeah. You were full-time involved until when? Well, I was on and off. I would always go and, you know, do other things. And then I would end up coming back. So left in... 2000, came back in 2005, left in 2008, came back in 2012, and the last time I worked there was 2014, except I did, I do this program at the Second City now in partnership with The Onion where we train 
writers how to write, but I don't go into the office. I'm not like a salaried employee at The Onion anymore. So it's been a um, not quite a linear <laughs> experience that I've had with The Onion. Of course, the book is called Outrageous Marketing, the story of The Onion and how to build a powerful brand with no marketing budget. It's really a history of The Onion, but you do weave in the marketing elements. What is the marketing piece that you want people to take from the book? Yeah, so I started to get invited to speak at marketing conferences, mm-hmm. and I never thought of myself as a business person or a marketing person. I've always just been a creative, just coming up with jokes. But I would speak at these conferences and just tell people what I did at The Onion, and they would always tell me, oh my God, that was so inspirational, and I learned so much about marketing. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what do, I don't know anything about marketing. I decided I should, I should tell the story, and I should weave it into kind of describing the techniques that I, because I had had so much fun doing that book, How to Write Funny, which is another nonfiction book only other nonfiction book I've ever written that I wanted it to be a fun story of the onion, but I also figured, well, why not make it practical as well? Since it seems like marketing people are really curious to know how the onion built itself with no effort put toward marketing ever into this huge organization that has millions of social media followers. So I named it, I named it outrageous marketing. And I kind of looked at my life and what I did at the onion and analyzed it and saw what I was doing and just tried to articulate it. And some of the main tenets of it are realizing that marketing is really no different than a person trying to get love and attention from other people. And nobody knows better how to do that than a comedian because they build their whole careers on that. And so having already analyzed how to make things funny, now I was kind of taking a broader view and saying, well, why do we want to make things funny? Well, we, because we want to get love and attention from people and we want to be the life of the party and want people to talk about us and we want fans. And that's exactly what marketing people want. So I go through a series and I sort of sum it up at the end of the book too with these like 13 points, like these takeaways of how somebody from marketing can apply these same tools or these same strategies to their marketing. And a lot of it has to do with being genuine and really focusing on trying to get the audience to fall in love with you as opposed to just trying to get their attention or trying to give them a benefit or relieve a pain, you know, all the kind of basic stuff. The uh, list has uh, live your mission, be obsessed. I won't give them all away because then people won't read the book. Uh, (laughs) And you said make people love you, building fans. It seems like one of the things The Onion also did was really be honest. You make fun of everyone, but it's in a it's in a clever, humorous way that again also has sort of a grain of truth. I, I'm also a big Howard Stern fan, and I think he's mm. an Onion fan, and he has a similar approach. He where he's very open, says what he wants, but in a clever way. I think the Onion, you know, does that and even better because you have to serve. You could argue a larger audience. And some of the things that some of the more interesting ones that I wanted to mention. Several websites have have sort of done their lists of your funniest or best work. Uh, one of them, Thoughtco.com, had the 25 best news articles from The Onion earlier this year, and one of them had Fun Toy Band because of Three Stupid Dead Kids. That says a lot. And then Why Do All These Homosexuals Keep Sucking My Blank and I Won't Say the Word? That seemed pretty rough. And I think that's that, one of my favorites ever. That came out early on, 1998. Yeah. And again, you're not, you use the word cock, which I'll say, because uh, we're not on broadcast TV here. And in that same one, it said, You may also like frustrated nurse, uh, unable to draw blood without draining entire body. I mean, that's, 
I don't know where this comes from, but it's a great, hilarious idea, you know, and this one about homosexuals. What brought that one up, and, and what was the reaction to that one, do you recall? was that Did that get some negative react? No, like in those early days, if you were salacious, and, you know, let's remember back to 1998, yes. there were no gay rights, really. Oh, there was no it was gay still marriage. terrible, yes. It was an environment where homophobia was kind of the accepted norm. Yes. And so being a little, a little more cool about it and trying to expose some of the hypocrisy involved in that was really powerful to people because a lot of the loudest opponents of gay rights were secretly filleting uh, little boys or whatever. So when you can expose that kind of hypocrisy in society, that's the juicy stuff of satire. And when you can do it in a super funny and shocking way, that's kind of the, the great tinderbox that you want in a good story that's going to go viral. I don't remember how that story came about. The system at The Onion is we come up with a ton of headlines every week, and we sift through those and try to pick the best handful that we're going to run. And so you don't really ever know like who came up with it. Mm. Sometimes you'll assign it to somebody different. And it's a little bit of a committee process that's led by the editor. So, yeah, I, I couldn't tell you, like, who came up with that one <laughs> or even who wrote it at this point. But it's one of my favorites. Love it. And another one they mentioned, CIA realizes it's been using black highlighters all these years. Which yeah, I of love course that one, is too. when they redact things and uh, just sort of one of these goofy ideas of, you know, there's so many real things you can make fun of. And I guess much of the best comedy does that. Now, obviously, you use, there's, you know, there's profanity, but most of it isn't. Most of it is kind of making fun of almost in an airplane type approach. You know, that movie, I think, made a lot of, got a lot of attention because a lot of its humor was very not controversial or blue. But I think much of The Onion's success is that it can just make fun of funny things. Like, uh, report says unemployment high because people keep blowing their job interviews. That's a great sort of look. It's relatable. Yeah, so Airplane is a good reference because, and that was a big influence on our sense of humor. Really? It came out in, I want to say, like, 77, uh, 78, somewhere yeah. in there. No, 80. Yeah, 1980. 80. Anyway, and then Monty Python before that. And yes, both I would of see those, them as one as well. Yeah, both of them knew how to do comedy with a straight face. That's not often done in America. So, for example, when the Zucker brothers wanted to make Airplane, the studio wanted them to get the top comedy stars of the day in their movie, like J.J. Walker and stuff like that. Right. And they were saying, no, 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 we want serious people. Yeah, we want, it worked much better like, with Leslie the serious Leslie Nielsen, who, who played heavies on TV episodes, yeah. like so they could deliver these funny lines in a really straight voice, or George Kennedy and people like that. Yeah. And Python was the same way, like the way John Cleese can just be so straight when he delivers these absurd lines. That's what The Onion had to do, because we wanted to be like this serious, important newspaper, but the words were actually really silly, you know? And uh, there was another one on their list, uh, gay teen worried he might be Christian. That's a, that's a great sort of flipping the argument <laughs> right. where, you know, Christian or the, the far-right Christian uh, evangelicals are, you know, much much of them are anti-gay and even the Catholic Church to say, well, you know, am I gay? I don't want to be Christian, you know. Uh, sort of flipping <laughs> exactly. it around. Um, and it, it reminds me of a, a more yeah. recent headline, um, more kids being home-churched. That's a great really like. one. Like homeschooled. <laughs> but, you know, they're going to, they're just not happy with the service they're getting at church. They feel like the kids are being indoctrinated incorrectly. And of course, we're talking to Scott Dickers, one of the founders of The Onion, the great newspaper website, uh, news network, and author of Outrageous Marketing, 
the story of the onion and how to build a powerful brand with no marketing budget. And of course, there's many areas that, that the newspaper and website go to, but I think one of the most memorable and I think smartest was, of course, the 9-11 issue, which, uh, as I'm reading the book, came out soon after you had had a big party the day before 9-11 uh, to celebrate the move to New York. There was a big party on September 10th. Right. To, yeah, to welcome the Onion staff to New York. It was a big to-do. And then, yeah, the planes hit the towers the very next day. There, there wasn't an Onion uh, put out for two weeks after that. Because it would normally have come out every week. It would have normally come out the week after. 9-11 occurred on a Tuesday. When, what date would it have come out? The Onion came out on Thursdays. On Thursday. So obviously that week you so, didn't have it come out. The publication was suspended, yeah, in and New then, York. So then the following week as well? No, then it came out the following week. Okay. Uh, I mean, we put the paper to bed on Sunday. And oh, I see. Take it to, to the printer. So to us, like Thursday, you know, it was this huge lag time. But it was two weeks from our last printer deadline. And what was the thought as you approached that issue, how to deal with it? Well, as I say in the book, my staff was still there and my former right-hand man, Robert Siegel, was the editor. So I was in touch with them, but I wasn't actually there. But, you know, I've certainly heard all the stories and I write about it in the book. But the feeling was, you know, we had just finished doing our first book that came out in 99 called Our Dumb Century, which... Right, which was The Onion, and we'll talk about that, The, the what The Onion, The Onion's historic coverage of the Titanic and wars and all was, that, that was brilliant. Right. But that had just come Thanks. out how soon? A couple of years earlier. A couple of years and earlier, okay. That, that experience really taught us all how to handle big events because we handled, you know, the Titanic, as you mentioned, the Hindenburg, and then even in more recent history, like the Oklahoma City federal yes. building bombing. And so we started to realize this whole uh, comedy equals tragedy plus time formula and how to make humor sort of a catharsis for people suffering from tragedy. And some of the um, uh, headlines in the Our Dumb Century, I'll give some plug. I mentioned the Titanic one. The headline was, world's largest in metaphor hits iceberg. That's a great one because obviously right. people refer to Titanic as the ultimate tragedy. Um, somewhat like Watergate. You know, everything is a gate now if it's a scandal. Uh, Watergate yep. was part of that. And, of course, Kennedy slain by CAA, Mafia, Castro, LBJ, Teamsters, Freemasons. Plays on, right. obviously, the many controversial and, and, and conspiracies about John Kennedy being killed. And you mentioned the other ones. But so that had come out in a few years earlier, and then you approach 9-11. Yeah, so the staff was really experienced at making humor out of tragedy. Mm -hmm. And there's always this question you have to ask, like, is it too soon and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, people were talking after 9-11, like, oh, you can't do humor anymore. Yeah. You can't do satire anymore, whatever. But we knew that humor was a wonderful coping mechanism in times of tragedy. So using that and make sh making sure to target legitimate targets for satire instead of, you know, going after the victims or doing anything overtly, annoyingly clever or anything like that. Humor can be, and satire can be, a great way for people to find their, their humanity again after being sort of in lizard brain after a tragedy. And, some, and go ahead. they did amazing work. Front page is still very creative. One of the main headlines, U.S. vows to defeat whoever it is we're at war with, which was a great humorous but not mean approach. And But the logo is my favorite, the uh, crosshairs on the U.S., attack on America, and then above that, holy fucking shit, which I think said it all but also made fun of the media, how, you know, right. 
Around that time, I think, and even before that, when the first uh, Gulf War occurred, we started seeing so many of these logos where everything's, you know, America at War or Tragedy This, or, you know, there's always a logo for everything. And I think that did a, a great shot at, at the media putting logos on these terrible events as though, you know, you're selling some kind of product, which, of course, they are in a way. Which they are. And, yeah. you know, starting around when The Onion began, you started to see more of the infotainmentization of news yes. after they got rid of the Fairness Doctrine. Yes. So that was a really deserving target of satire. And was you, just, wait a minute, how are we actually getting our news? News organizations now have, have budgets that are competing with entertainment programming. So they have to be more sensational and they have to have cool logos. And yeah, that's the sort of thing that is a worthy target. You also write in the book about the other story on page one of that issue, hijackers surprised to find selves in hell, and that you wrote about there were different ideas that were dismissed, but that one seemed to be a good one because it was funny and it made fun of the hijackers who were you know, hoping to go to this paradise, but also showing what evil they did, what went into that one. Yeah, I mean, that's my favorite. And it's very similar to we did a few years earlier the headline was mother Teresa sent to hell in wacky afterlife mix-up that's a great one and it just described her being tortured in in hell and kind of repurposing that idea for the hijackers was so cathartic because you're able to laugh at them being tortured and it, it just felt so good and also make fun of their hypocrisy like they literally thought they were going to be confronted with 72 virgins it was a really is a wonderful wonderful piece so funny but also just felt so justified you know justified is a good i think a good description of a lot of what they do that most people will read the laugh because it's funny it's smart but there's also a grain of reality to it or at least a commentary on society one of the other headlines there was american life turns into bad jerry bruckheimer movie and right. uh, not knowing what else to do woman bakes american flag cake which is a little subtle hit at people who you know what do they do in these in these kind of events this was such an unusual situation but you you can kind of make fun of that it put us in a position that we've never in before um even when it was you know world war Two and everyone was going off to war and the country got behind but you sort of knew what was happening this was such a bizarre unusual scary thing and another one on that issue was hugging up 76,000 percent i thought that was a great comment on right. <laughs> yeah, so it brought everyone together. And then rest of country temporarily feels deep affection for New York. That's a great shot at New York at the time. And it, yeah. And then, of course, you throw in Jerry Falwell. Is that guy a dick or what? Yeah, because he blamed uh, 9-11 on the gay. Yeah. I mean, that really no no holds barred on a lot of, you know, going after authority, going after big names. And also, I don't know if you knew this, but I had done a story later that year or in 2002 on the Pulitzers that the Onion was being considered for a Pulitzer for that issue. Did you ever learn about that? Yeah, yeah, I did hear about that. Yeah. Um, Zach Stahlberg, then... who was the editor of the Philadelphia Daily News and was on a Pulitzer jury, he had wanted the jury to recommend that edition for a Pulitzer. And of course others knocked it down but he was very adamant in saying that that edition was both clever and funny and handled the humor aspect of this tragedy in such a classy way that he thought it deserved credit for that yeah which is amazing and they did they totally did deserve that kind of credit not that they were in it for the credit you know they were they were just trying to express how they were feeling at the time two weeks after the tragedy being very new uh, transplanted New Yorkers. Because, yeah, because the Onion New York office had been, as we said, only there uh, for a short time and had actually been having a celebration about it the day before. So 
It yeah, was, that was, issue was the first New York issue right. produced in New York. The other thing I wanted to ask you is several of the better pieces, I think, deal with God. Um, my favorite occurred, I think, in the 9-11 issue, or if not soon after, God angrily clarifies don't kill rule, which is such a great commentary on religious extremists using their religious beliefs to justify uh, hurting or killing others. And he said here, and they're quoting God. He's saying, look, I don't know, maybe I haven't made myself clear, but here it is again, you know, thou shalt not kill don't kill in my name. It's somewhat irreverent, but it's also kind of logical. And there were many other God elements, God or articles. What what went into those, and was that considered sort of touchy area? Yeah, not really. I mean, that, yeah. that was in the 9-11 issue, that particular story. Um, and it, it almost sounds like a sermon, you know, and it's a good piece of satire can be a sermon as long as it's funny, and you're just delivering the sermon sort of through subtext that people don't realize. You know, in, in defense of religious fanatic, I just want to say God himself has been pretty unclear on the subject. So if you look in parts of any religious text, you'll see calls to violence as well as calls not to kill. And part of what that type of a story is trying to do, which The Onion has done a lot in its religious humor, is not only trying to hold up a mirror to society and say, hey, you can be better, but holding it up to every institution, churches, religions, and saying, hey, you can be better, because it is unclear. And people can point to the Bible and say, well, the Bible told me that these people should be put to death, so they should be. You know what I'm saying? And God has made many appearances in The Onion over the years, including just the last year. I, I came up with many examples, and it's almost a regular God confirms Whitey Bulger sent to hell for snitching, um, not for killing people, but for snitching. And God admits there was probably a better way of giving humans taste of heavenly bliss than opioids. Is there yeah, a certain... God is a character who comes back quite a bit. He's sort of in the pantheon of characters uh, that The Onion uses and has always used, obviously because he's such an important part of American culture, and you know, world culture. Why not use him? And Jesus is often used. We, we had a story once about Jesus being arrested after bombing an abortion clinic, one story. And then a big popular story way back was Christ Returns to NBA. That was a lot of fun. Great picture of him dunking a ball on the front page. Classic. I would say to a person, everyone on the Onions writing staff is at least an agnostic, if not an atheist. Mm-hmm. So none of us have ever felt any sense of like a sacred, like that, that anything is sacred and you have to use kid gloves with anything. You can look at anything with clear eyes and turn on your bullshit detector. And that's what good satire is supposed to do. And just point out where there are, are flaws in human created institutions or characters or religions or anything. But I don't think it's done disrespectfully in sort of no no because you you can't disrespect people's beliefs or they won't listen to you so and you know you don't want to be snarky about it you don't want to be a charlatan like a lot of preachers are you just want to be honest you want to tell the truth through lies you know through comedy and the best way to do that is is through a compassionate voice where you actually do care about people and you can understand why people might believe in these antiquated religions and try to steer them in the direction that is that we think is better because you know it's all about trying to make the world a better place and a happier place and bring more laughs into it and being able to sneak in a little subtextual message that makes people think a little bit more critically about their choices in life. That's what it's all about. And does, has there also been examples where you make fun of atheists or agnostics? or? Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, every human has flaws, you know, and if you only pick on some of them, that's why the onion has always been an equal opportunity offender. Like people always ask, oh, you know, in these 
in these times, seems like news is writing the humor for you or whatever. And it's not really the case. There's always stupid people and there's always people doing things that you can look at objectively and say, well, that's really not helpful <laughs> to anyone. Yeah, it's just checking people on their bullshit. And again, and not in an annoying way. But in a funny way, right. so you get them laughing at their own foibles. Another interesting one was, I guess this came out a year ago, heavenly authorities arrest God for leaving children in overheating planet. That's a great line yeah. because you talk about <laughs> yeah. God uh, protecting the people. And, and I'm a religious person, but I also have a great respect for making fun of it all. God has a sense of humor in a lot of these. You don't necessarily make fun of people for believing in God, but you kind of pick on, you know, if this all-powerful creator is taking care of us, then why are we on this terrible, you know, why we have all these terrible things could happen but even that is in not necessarily a funny way but a clever way of saying well this sort of turns the table on what you think or are supposed to believe in a way that i think a lot of religious people will even laugh at you don't want to alienate anyone in comedy comedy should be as accessible as possible so if you're going to touch on a touchy subject you better do it in a way that everybody can appreciate and like to go uh to make the logical transition from god to trump i did a book in early 2016 called trump's america buy this book and we wanted to make that Trump book appeal to Trump voters as well as people who don't like Trump. So there are ways to do that where you are subversive with your comedy and you can point up these ridiculous figures and make fun of them and really be trenchant with your satire and really point out their flaws and still do it in a way that you're not going to alienate any people because that's just not going to be helpful if you're only playing to half of the audience, you know. So I feel the same way about religion or politics or anything that might be potentially divisive. And what are some of the ones that got you in the most trouble? You talk in the book about some things to sort of maybe not backfired, but got more negative reaction than you might have expected. Yeah. The Onion, amazingly, has never been sued successfully, but we've had many, many threats of lawsuits over the years. One of the very earliest times was the governor of Wisconsin uh, threatened to sue us because we had done this front page story, Governor Proclaims November Masturbation Month. That's a great joke. Yeah, it was um, one of these situations where it wasn't necessarily about him being made fun of that was angering him. It was that we had gotten, uh, we had asked for a photo from the governor's office and they wouldn't give it to us. The press secretary, the guy by the name of John Hankus, wouldn't give me the photo. So I found a photo from the daily newspaper in town and used that. But on the side of the photo, I wrote in really small letters, special thanks to John Hankus. Oh, classic. He was so upset. And and who you know, was the governor at the time? Was it the current governor? That was Tommy Thompson. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, that was a long time ago. Yeah. So, you know, little things like that will happen. And and then later, of course, we got into trouble with Donald Trump. Michael Cohen, you know, wrote us a letter asking us to pull an article that made fun of Trump. And that's just unreal. That was like 2013, I want to so say. So this is before he's even running for president. Yeah, yeah. And before that, we got a cease and desist letter from George W. Bush's legal affairs office when he was president because he didn't like that we were using the presidential seal in the onion for this parody of the weekly radio address that we were doing. Excellent. Is the, is the seal a, a copyrighted image? I would think not. Uh, Nixon apparently issued some sort of presidential edict that said you can't use the presidential seal unless it's for official presidential business. So technically, comedians are not supposed to use it. And Bush decided, oh, I, the Onion's using it. We should sue them. And then I got that and I was like, wait a minute. I watch Saturday Night Live almost every week. Yes. They have a 
a fake president on a podium that has that damn seal right there on the podium. So what's the, what's with this unfair treatment? So we ignored that and sent the cease and desist order to the New York Times, and they did a big front page art section piece about it, and we got a ton of publicity for this new book that we were doing about Excellent. George W. Bush. So it worked out great for us. Did they back down on the cease and desist, or it just never really went anywhere beyond that? Yeah, no, typically at The Onion, we would just ignore those things, and they would go away because once those people started talking to their lawyers realistically about suing, they'd be like, oh, the First Amendment. And they would just forget that uh, the Onion has the right to make fun of anything it wants, essentially. Yeah, and parody has a long history in uh, legal defense going back to, yeah. I believe, wasn't it Hustler and Jerry Falwell was one of the famous cases where they went to court. That was the famous People versus Larry Flint even uh, case where they went to court and won the right to make fun of public figures and do things that are obviously yeah, and parody. It was, it was a unanimous Supreme Court yes. decision. The, the Onion would look back at that often and take comfort in the fact that the press has blanket freedom to be offensive and make fun of whoever they want. And he also seemed to indicate that in history, people in power, Trump doesn't really seem to have a good sense of humor about making fun of himself, but most people in power who do gain when they are made fun of uh, in such an obvious spoof and either commend it or let it go, don't take action and... It generally helps their image and you know, yeah. gives people now, even that's sympathy. Cool, that's a cool way and the smart way to do it. But like we did a book on, um, we did a fake autobiography of Joe Biden, I think in about 2012, I want to say. And he tweeted about it. Uh, he was all excited about it. And then Obama retweeted his tweet, which was pretty exciting. But we made this character out of Joe Biden of the sort of like Rust Belt dirtbag. Oh, funny. That pretty unflattering, but we did a ton of articles about him, and people loved him, so we decided to do a whole book. And I, on the cover, it was him washing his Trans Am in the White House driveway with no shirt on, and he just ate it up. So, that, yeah, that's how you that Trump needs to learn from Biden. Yeah, and I don't doubt that he will. There's also some great examples I found online of Onion articles that were wrongly assumed to be accurate real news. 1998 article, uh, 98 homosexual recruitment drive nearing goal. And that yeah. uh, the Westboro Baptist Church, which is you know one of these ardent anti-gay uh, outlets, put it on their website as proof that gays were actively trying to recruit other gays, and not realizing it was a parody. Congress passes Americans with No Abilities Act came out in nineteen ninety eight. Someone take that seriously. It says that it was passed around online by various groups. Uh, pro and anti uh, ADA, even to getting to uh, other countries as an example of why something should be done either pro ADA or anti ADA. And another one here, this seems, I could see this getting a lot of believability by ignorant people. Harry Potter books spark rise in Satanism among children. And this looks yeah. like a columnist had written about uh, how this could be done to recruit children. Satanism. Sadly, some people are so invested in their fantasy worlds that when it's laid out before them as reality, they just accept it. And the other, uh, this is one last one I'll mention. I mean, I'm sure it goes on and on because, plus the, the articles are written so cleverly. You, you could do a whole book on that. Well, people wrongly believed us. Uh, Congress, Somebody set up a, a Tumblr blog called Literally Unbelievable where they do that. It's really fun to flip through. Literally Unbelievable. But the other one I want to mention it said Congress threatens to leave D.C. unless new capital is built. It had Reuters reporting in 2002 that the Beijing a Evening News, no uh, small outlet, 
republish and translated portions of the article. Oh, this is, of course, anything that, that, that shows the stupidity of, of politicians I like. It looks like a 2012 article, Planned Parenthood Opens $8 Billion Abortion Plex. That's a great attack, not necessarily attack on Planned Parenthood, but sort of a spoof of just the whole abortion debate and how, how strongly people on both sides want all or nothing is sort of the way I always looked at abortion in this country. One side wants everything legal, and one side wants nothing legal. So when you talk about an abortion plex, it seems to sort of take the idea of abortion uh, clinics to the highest, you know, crazy level. But according right. to this, it said that U.S. Congressman John Fleming of Republican posted a link to the article on his Facebook page and uh, used it to criticize Planned Parenthood. Of course, it was a false story. Pretty funny when that happens. Um, it's an extra extra layer of humor for everybody who knows it's a joke. But, you know, there are all the examples. there. And the other thing about The Onion that I find also funny is many of the items are not even stories. They're just headlines. What what goes into that sometimes, as an yeah. idea? Where just the headline well, alone you, is funny. Yeah, sometimes when you're going through all the headlines that are submitted in a given week, you realize some of them just don't have legs as a story. The joke is pretty self-contained in the headline, so you just run it as a headline with maybe a picture and a fake jump to you know see story page eighteen or whatever, and then there's nothing there. So that was something that we've been doing for many many years. It's a little harder online because you can't have a fake jump, so it's just a picture and a headline. And the only other example are ordinary people stories, like the man man yeah, who shows up for man date and like, man wrongly right. assumes dinner with friend is date, or man blows up backyard grill because he didn't realize the gas was on, or you know simple everyday things. Have those been a part of it since the beginning, or did those come about later on? Those slowly developed over time. I think one of the very first ones was in the first year. It was dead guy found. Yes, I did see and that. Just an article about dead body that was found. But yeah, the sort of relatable stories of a regular person just doing something and then making it larger than life by putting it in a newspaper and turning it into news was something that we discovered pretty early, I'd say within the first two or three years. It was a really funny formula. Taking people's you know, little private lives or little things they've experienced. That could um, even be a comment then, on, on, on the news, sort of reporting things that maybe wouldn't really affect most people. Like you said, finding a dead body. That doesn't really affect anyone other than the person who died and maybe their family right but we make it a news story yeah so and then you end up using observational humor which is one of the humor techniques i talk about in my how to write funny book that it's just a little relatable thing and people love seeing something they can relate to that oh i've experienced that in my life or whatever and it just becomes funnier when you exaggerate it and put it in a newspaper and we actually developed a pilot for a show called area man that comedy central bought didn't end up going anywhere but i was really excited about that because the Onion has done a few failed attempts to take its news parody to TV. When we came up with Area Man, the idea was, well, let's try to come up with a show that could be an Onion TV show, but that isn't about fake news. It didn't end up going anywhere. It would have been an animated sitcom. I was pretty excited about it. And you also had the Onion Radio Network and the Onion News Network, which is still online, but is it is it happening as much as it had in the past? Yeah, the Onion Radio News is not a thing anymore. Right. It was a weekly little news segment like a little news bit that radio stations could play and then once there was podcasting we put it out as a podcast and then once we started doing video that became our primary sort of podcast venue or our multimedia venue and we stopped doing the radio news because the video was was just a much more viable advertising vehicle but i loved doing the onion radio news that was so fun yeah. we had this guy p.s Mueller, who's a cartoonist did the voice because he used to do am radio news oh, he back had the in perfect the news 70s 
He was beautiful, and yeah. he, but he also understood the humor, so he yeah. could play it straight and would say anything. He would say whatever we wrote, <laughs> and sometimes it was hard to get through some of that copy without him losing it. And those, the, onion, those were uh, fun the Onion video, I came across one, I think went up a few months ago. A little girl, six-year-old, explains how messed up, uh, how her life was messed up by Facebook, that her parents keep putting pictures of her on Facebook from when she was a baby, and it's ruining right. her life, yeah, which is a great commentary, as many of these are. The Onion Radio News, though, I gotta say, my son, who's 14 now, when he was, I think, six or seven, I played some of them for him, and he would make up Onion-type news reports for our neighborhood, um, we live on Yale oh, Street, great. and he would say, it's Yale Street, the onion, you know, and he'd say, you know, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith uh, discover that the backyard charcoal is empty and ruins their barbecue or, you know, really kind of funny little vignettes about our neighborhood, and he would record them, and people got a That's great awesome. kick out of it. So it's just that kind of simple but clever humor that you guys really brought to life and in all these different forms. So I will let you go. We've been uh, bothering you long enough. Of course, we've been talking to Scott Dickers, one of the founders of The Onion and the author of Outrageous Marketing, The Story of The Onion and How to Build a Powerful Brand with No Marketing Budget. You can find it exclusively at Amazon.com, where you can also get as many other books, the Jim's Journal collections, the Trump books, and, of course, the How to Write Funny, which Scott knows so well he's doing it. Any other comments on The Onion's uh, 30-year history and it's going strong and what you're what you're up to and planning for the future? Yeah, so I'm enjoying writing humor books. I'm trying to write more because uh, I really love it and I miss it, not being involved with The Onion anymore. A book last month that I just did that came out was a parody of Elon Musk. It's called Welcome to the Future, which is mine by not Elon Musk. <laughs> and there's probably more books like that in my future. I'm going to do C to how to write funny and I'm going to keep mentoring people and teach them how to write comics I'm really enjoying that and I also have a podcast I know you know this is a podcast so I should talk about my podcast yes please called also how to write funny where I talk to people in the comedy business about kind of the nuts and bolts of doing comedy and we can find that on uh, all the all the podcast that is on all, all the podcast places yeah and the name of it is again what the how to write funny podcast how to write funny podcast you're the man who should know and we'll keep uh, reading and watching and looking for onion ideas i would urge people to go back and look at the old ones if they haven't seen them or even just a reminder of of the cleverness of this and hopefully this and other types of comedy from you will keep coming. And I appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure, Joe. It's fun uh, remembering all this stuff. Thank you. You too, sir. Be well. You too. Thank you. And that's it for this week's edition of Joe's Media Corner. I want to remind you to pick up my new book, Killing Journalism, How Greed, Laziness, and Donald Trump Are Destroying News and How We Can Save It. That's out of my friends at Willow Street Press and available at Amazon.com or ask your local bookstore to order it. Get yourself a copy just in time for Christmas. And don't forget to support our sponsor, that's Jiminy's Dog Treats, Cricket Protein that's hypoallergenic, humane, nutritious, delicious, and fights climate change. Reduce your carbon paw print with Jiminy's at Jiminy's.com, J-I-M-I-N-Y-S.com. And we'll be back again next time for another Joe's Media Corner. Thanks for listening. Down on the corner, out in the street, playing the 